It's December 1st, 2023, and this is the Room Now podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. This podcast is brought to you by RoomNow.live. Great meetings like this you really need to go to. You know, we moved it up this year. It's going to be January 27th and 28th, full day Saturday, half day Sunday, um, we extended the early bird discounted registration to December the 15th. So go to roomnow.live to see how much it's going to cost you. You can attend on-site in Dallas or online and virtual. Either which way, we'd love to have you. It's going to be a great meeting. Uh, check out our agenda uh, and the program. I think you're going to enjoy it. Today we're going to answer the big question, is methotrexate safe in the elderly? But first... I saw an interesting study coming from British Columbia about the topic that I'm kind of not convinced of, and that is, are we better at referring patients for earlier care? And this is a study from British Columbia where they do some really good uh, um, administrative data analyses, and they showed uh, comparing their patients seen as new patient consults in rheumatology uh, between the, the years 2010 and 2020 that they saw a lot more patients. They were being more productive, 31% more patients, such that in 2019-2020, they saw uh, over 149,000 new first-time consults in rheumatology. Uh, and again, these first-time consults were not only just you know an increased number, but they were better at seeing more inflammatory arthritis. Back when they began this analysis, it was about 28% of their new consults were for inflammatory arthritis, and in 2020, it was up to 51%, so that's a really nice trend. Moreover, they showed that the time um, to first visit, you know, the referrals was actually decreased by 33%. I think that the delay was like initially 60 four days, 63 days, and went down to like 41 days. Well, that's good. That's not great. And so while they were doing better at getting patients referred from primary care to the rheumatologist and specialty care, there was no significant change in the time to first DMARD initiation. And that's really kind of the gold standard. You know, refer them early, get them started early. So uh, and what they found was that if you were in rural areas, it was hard to get seen in a timely manner. Women were less likely to receive earlier care than men. That's quizzical, is it not? But clearly, there's a, still a challenge in getting patients started on early DMAR therapy. And this is with inflammatory arthritis, a.k.a. rheumatoid arthritis. I saw a repeat report coming out of ACR 2023 from the National Data Bank and Forward Study, Caleb Mashad's great study on um, RA patients with long COVID. So in their large database of you know, many thousands of patients, um, 667 were RA patients infected with COVID. And of those patients, 15% claimed by patient survey to have long COVID symptoms. Um, when you analyze those patients compared to other patients, guess what? They were more likely to have worse RA pre-COVID and, by the way, worse RA or RA activity post-COVID. Um, and it turns out that they also had worse COVID infections, receiving more antibiotics than other patients, and they were more likely to be hospitalized. And here's the punchline. 
They were also threefold more likely to have fibromyalgia as a diagnosis. And that really begs the question, is long COVID really just fibromyalgia, an exaggerated response, prolonged response to a devastating illness? Uh, and in their study, when they looked at um, the patients with long COVID symptoms versus already patients without it, the background diagnosis of fibromyalgia was 41% versus 13%. So higher than threefold. Again, I'm a firm believer that Gulf War syndrome, breast implant associated arthritis, um, and, and long COVID, that much of it is related to fibromyalgia. And it's the stress um, that we suffer that will affect some people more than others. Uh, and But yet I still encourage research in this area to better understand it because there are some very interesting immunologic abnormalities and, and other features. And for that, I'd re refer you to a lot of the great work Len Calabrese in the Cleveland Clinic is doing on this. I want to remind you that there are many biosimilars out there, especially now in the psoriasis space, you know, that's really busy in psoriasis. You know, there's um, five TNF inhibitors, but that doesn't count the, what, nine adalimumab biosimilars, the four etanercept biosimilars, the four or five infliximab biosimilars. But now we have an, yet another biosimilar with a ustekinumab. The IL-1223 inhibitor has been approved and is available. Uh, and another study looking at the biosimilar of ustekinumab, CTP43, multinational phase three, 509 plaque psoriasis patients. It was equivalent to its originator, ustekinumab, also known as Stellara, with week 16 posse 75 scores of about 75% for both groups. And I think it's worth mentioning because we're going to see a lot of, a lot more biosimilars in play in our patients. And I think that for me, one of the things I've noticed about your interest or, uh, uh, or endorsement or reluctance of biosimilars, that carries forward to your patients. If you don't believe that biosimilars are as effective as the originator, um, that's going to be transmitted to your patients. And when that biosimilar switch is going to happen, your patients aren't going to do as good as you want because you were negative about biosimilars since the get-go. I'm a strong believer in biosimilars. I do believe that they will fulfill the promise of lowering the cost of care uh, and um, bringing more care, better care to more patients ultimately. It's going to take us a while here in the United States. I think other uh, jurisdictions and countries have done much better than us. Uh, an interesting study from Portugal looked at falls um, as an adverse event in their national um, database, uh, and they identified over 2,000 falls. Uh, a lot of them were serious. So if you make it into the pharmacovigilance database, and that would be like MedWatch in the, in the United States, here in uh, MHRA in the UK, and here in Portugal, they have their own 2,200 uh, falls, most serious, most in women, um, most in the 18 to 64 year old range, surprisingly more so than in the much older range. So it's not always 70 year olds and above. 24% um, uh, resulted in fractures. Uh, one in seven said that the fall was an adverse drug reaction, meaning the drugs they were on 
were responsible for the falls. And the number one implicated class of therapy, to much to my surprise, was immunomodulators at 17%. Not a big number, but it was the top one. How do immunomodulators, and that could be biologic, JAX, methotrexate, azathioprine, I think it's a, it's a surrogate marker for someone who has arthritis and that requires an immunomodulator. And I think one of the main reasons people fall is going to be not just CNS effects of a drug, it's really pain from their condition. Uh, now, certain drugs certainly could cause CNS effects and dizziness, um, but I think pain is the main driver, pain and weakness, and weakness due to inactivity from pain. So, but nonetheless, falls are a big problem in our patients, and we need to pay attention to that problem and prevent it where possible. I mean, patients can be trained through physical therapy, how to fall and how to avoid falls. Um, this is an important uh, part of patient management. Um, a UK study um, was very interesting in that it looked at what happens after you stop tocilizumab in patients with giant cell arteritis. So in the UK, you can be treated with the IL-6 inhibitor tocilizumab, but the nice stipulation is that you're only approved for 12 months of therapy. So be careful how you use it, when you use it. In this study of 336 patients who were given on average, 12 months of tocilizumab therapy, they stopped their tocilizumab, and guess what happened to flare rates? Not good. So when those patients stopped their tocilizumab, they were doing pretty well, as evidenced by low doses of prednisone, two milligrams per day. But at six months, the flare rate was 21% for their GCA. At 12 months, it was 35%, and at 24 months, it was 49%, suggesting that um, therapy in GCA is not like, you know, wham, bam, and you're done after six or 12 months of therapy. Some patients will respond and you can get them off therapy, but the majority, I think, it's more than two years of therapy and that's how you're going to have to consider using steroid sparing therapy like tocilizumab. Those patients, when they flared, it was documented that they flared, but also supported by the fact that uh, a high percentage of them were classified as major flares, up to a third, and the vast majority of them needed an increase in their steroids up to 40 milligrams a day. Scleroderma, the big challenge therapeutically, diagnostically, and we worry about lung disease. I found an interesting report in Lancet this week, actually comes out today uh, or yesterday, about the chemokine CXCL10. Um, you know, it's involved in inflammation, it's involved in fibrosis, it's involved in lung disease in general. And in this study, uh, they tout it as a potential biomarker for ILD in systemic sclerosis. So in their study, 165 patients, they compared those with ILD, 41 patients, versus those without ILD, that's 165 minus 41, and found that uh, serum CXCL10s were significantly higher in those who had ILD. If they looked at all their patients and, and, uh, and the chemokine levels, having an elevated chemokine increased your risk of interstitial lung disease almost threefold. And then in further analysis of tissue, I guess they found that most of the CXCL10 was coming from inflamed tissue more so than fibrotic tissue. Again, I think this is an early study. I'd like to see this repeated, but you know, it would be nice if we had a nice biomarker that would tell us what to do. It'd also be nice if we knew what drug to use when they got 
interstitial lung disease. We got a few that are approved. Uh, that would include tocilizumab and nintendinib and perfenidone. Um, and in this uh, next report, a single center study coming out of, out of the Mass General and the Brigham and Jeff Sparks um, working group, they collected their experience with 74 patients with RA-associated uh, ILD. This is RA now associated ILD, who were treated with antifibrotics. So this is kind of an observational open-label study. 40 got nintendinib, uh, 34 perfenidone, and um, we don't see or talk a lot about perfenidone use, but it is a staple in the ILD world and in the pulmonary world. There's not a lot of studies. There's some studies with RA, but it gets used nonetheless. So in their 74 patients, kind of split between the two drugs, almost 90 weeks of follow-up, they had a significant improvement in both with both of the antifibrotic agents uh, when looking at the rate of change in the uh, forced vital capacity. So they, if they, they were showing that basically the forced vital capacity was going to go down and that giving these drugs flattened out the curve and changed the, the trajectory or slope um, compared to those who did not get the therapy. So this is a good story, is it not? However, this is a bad story overall because these 74 with RAILD, 35% died. Four underwent lung transplant. 55% had serious or, you know, significant adverse events. And, you know, perfenidone, not as much as nintendinib, which has a lot of GI complaints. And 46% had to discontinue their antifibrotic because of uh, the toxicity from the drugs. So this is a significant management problem. It's great that we have some options, but we need more help, do we not? Uh, a real quizzical report came out of the UK this past week. Their MedWatch or, 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 or monitoring uh, group for drug safety, like the FDA has, uh, is the MHRA. Uh, and they issued a safety warning, a reminder, that methotrexate may be associated with photosensitivity. When I saw that, I said, oh, really? I may not have been watching for photosensitivity in the 8 million people I treated with methotrexate and never seen photosensitivity. What are they talking about? Well, it was, you know, it's a government thing, right? It's an agency thing. And there was a report of a death that came into a coroner that prompted a, an analysis by the MHRA of the safety profile methotrexate, and they noted that it's included in the warnings uh, regarding the drug. And in this report that came in, there was a death that was associated with photosensitivity that led to secondary infection and then led to death. So we're going to blame methotrexate for all of this? I don't know. It's kind of a stretch. I'm making it uh, up to you to decide whether you need to worry about this. Do I recommend my patients avoid the sunlight and use sunscreen while on methotrexate i do not and you know shame on dr kush for not giving all the ridiculous warnings that we could possibly give our patients but i don't and i can't say that i've ever been burnt by it so i did a literature search there's like 200 citations they're all weak really weak a lot of single case report when you look at the package insert for methotrexate, yeah, you can find it. Um, uh, it says that you should be aware that exposure to ultraviolet radiation while taking methotrexate may aggravate psoriasis. So this is UV therapy uh, in um, psoriatics 
that may make psoriasis worse if they're on methotrexate. Is that true that it really is due to methotrexate or is that one of them causal casual associations we'll never figure out? Another line says methotrexate can cause radiation recall dermatitis and photodermatitis or sunburn reactivation. Uh, and this would be, you know, in patients who've received um, radiation therapy. I, I, I find this all sketchy and maybe explainable by other explanations, but nonetheless, I'll leave that for you to decide. I think the more important report in JAMA this past week was methotrexate toxicity being uh, more prevalent in older patients with CKD. Now, we know that. You know, you, you hardly ever get into renal issues or cytopenia issues with methotrexate unless they have, you know, a significant CKD, you know, stage three, four, or whatever. Creatinines that are uh, approaching two and higher. Uh, and yeah, this is more likely in the elderly is they're more likely to have CKD. So this report out of Ontario looked at administrative claims and EHR data in 4618, over 4,000 patients propensity matched elderly adults who had CKD, meaning a, a GFR of less than 60, all right? But they could not have been on dialysis. And when they compared that group to, which was 2,309 patients, to um, a propensity match group taking hydroxychloroquine, right? This could have been for multiple diseases. Not, well, more than half of them were for RA, and a quarter of them may have been, for, actually were for atopic dermatitis. Then it's a big mixture of 10, 12, 9, 15% with either lupus or um, dermatomyositis. There was some sclerodermas in there. There's some psoriasis in there. And they compared, again, methotrexate to hydroxychloroquine because of the similar indications, right? And hydroxychloroquine is a safe drug. And they were looking at the 90-day risk of serious toxicity, and their primary endpoint was myelosuppression, sepsis, uh, lung disease, that would be methotrexate pneumonitis, or hepatotoxicity. And it was basically higher, obviously, in methotrexate in older patients with CKD than with hydroxychloroquine. The doses are standard doses that you would normally use. Um, and so it was twofold higher um, in, at almost uh, 3.5% compared to 1.7% with hydroxychloroquine. That the toxicity risk um, was um, higher when as the GFR got lower. So when they looked at the GFR being less than 45, it went from a, uh, a relative risk of 2 to a relative risk of 2.8, and then so on and so forth. Also, it was higher with higher doses of methotrexate, uh, above 15 and as high as 35. So again, this is a good reminder for us to be careful in the elderly, uh, and I use a lot of methotrexate in the elderly, but I do watch their creatinine uh, really closely. And I stress to them they got to get that, that lab test one month after and then after that every three months looking at their creatinine, looking at their um, uh, what you believe to be or their, what you calculate to be their GFR. The last big report is the good news. Happy rheumatology um, day when we get the results of the, uh, the NMR, uh, the National Residency Matching Program, looking at the subspecialty matching and rheumatology did great again, performing at a top six level compared to all the other medical subspecialties that showed greater than 98% matching uh, for available programs. So 
basically, in, for adult rheumatology, um, almost 98% of the rheumatology fellowship programs matched, and um, almost 99% of the positions matched, 273 out of 276. This is a little bit higher, almost a uh, point and a half higher than last year's. The good news is that we have a few more rheumatology programs and a few more rheumatology positions this year compared to last year. So congratulations to you program directors who are expanding. Um, and again, um, only three programs uh, and only three positions did not match this year for adult rheumatology. I wish I could be as enthusiastic and congratulatory in pediatric rheumatology. I really, I ache when I see this kind of data. Pediatric fellowships did not match very well, meaning only 21 out of 38 programs or 55% matched in pediatric rheumatology. And of the positions, 52 positions nationwide, only 32 or 61% matched. That's not good. So 45% of the programs did not match. Um, 38 or 39% of the positions did not fill. What are we going to do to get people interested in pediatric rheumatology? Well, we got to target pediatricians. We got to target those. We got to get more medical students uh, and trainees to do pediatric rheumatology fellowships. I would um, implore the adult rheumatology program directors to require medical students that rotate with you that they do at least one or two weeks of pediatric rheumatology or that they do, um, you know, in addition to your clinics, do the pediatric rheumatology clinics and get exposure to that. We need to have a think tank on this major problem um, because there are so many kids that are not getting the care that they need. And, and by the way, pediatric rheumatology is wildly exciting. I mean, there are, there are no dull patients, honestly. It is, and I did a lot of pediatric rheumatology. It's why I went into rheumatology, to be honest with you, uh, because of my interest in systemic JIA and Stills disease. I got to go to pediatric rheumatology clinic, you know, every Friday with Chester Fink, Lynn Pinero, Virginia Pasquale, and the UT Southwestern people at the Texas Scottish Rite Hospital. It's one of the happiest days of my training. Um, and led me to be an adult who will see pediatric rheumatology consults. There are not many of you out there doing that either. So please, let's get involved in fixing this problem. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Check out roomnow.live for registration. you got to get your hotel room if you're going to come to Dallas because that window for a discount hotel rate closes, I think, January 5th. Artie Cavanaugh and I are looking forward to meeting you there. Bye-bye.